0: Hello there. This evening, This Is Your Life begins here in Paris. We've just flown in. I've got a car standing by and a plane waiting at Orly Airport to whisk away our unsuspecting guest of honour to our studios in London for the show tonight. The story, the romantic life story of this person, is one that's been described to me as a story of fun, fear and faith. In the 1920s, she was a well-to-do young lady in Hampstead, In 1930 a turn in fortune and she was working as a shop girl in a famous London departmental store. In 1940 when the Nazis walked down this very street she was forced to flee and spent four frightening years on the run. Little dreaming that one day she would be in charge of one of the most famous and exclusive fashion houses in the world, the House of Balmain. In fact right now she's in there displaying her spring collection and as always leading and guiding fashion tastes around the world there is one item on the collection tonight she doesn't know about this and i'm going in there right now forgive the interruption if you would these cameras are not just here for your spring collection but so that also i could say Jeanette Spanier, directrice of the House of Bauman, tonight in London. This is your life.
1: I
2: don't believe it. I don't believe That's it. That's well why
0: they're there all the time.
2: I don't That's believe it. That's why the plane it. is booked.
0: That's why the car is oh. waiting. We've got a bag of surprises in oh. London right now. I don't believe it. <laughs> Jean
2: Pierre <laughs> Oh, I got <laughs> we're
1: going to
0: secret up to now. We're going to whisk her to London and it's going to happen tonight. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, my apologies to all of those who were confused when we began this episode. You might have been wondering where you had landed when you heard those beginning few moments from a 50-year-old TV show. But don't worry, I promise, this actually is an episode from the Atelier Balmain podcast. And for those of you who didn't recognize the theme song and key phrases of that old classic, what we just played for you were the introductory minutes from an old episode of a very popular 20th century British TV weekly program. It was called This Is Your Life. And that show, just like the American series of the same name, it began in the 1950s and it stayed on TV for almost five decades. The idea behind This Is Your Life was basically a very simple one. Each week, the host, in this case for the Brits, was an Irish announcer named Eamon Andrews would sneak up and surprise a famous guest before, whisking them away to the show's studios on Euston Road in London, would then spend a half hour in front of a live audience reviewing the high points of their life, with the help of videos, voiceovers, and walk-ons from some of the key people in that person's history. And each of those star guests were chosen, week after week, for just one reason. Because each of them had led an extraordinary life. That allowed the show to offer a half hour of feel-good stories of tough struggles, difficulties overcome, and inspiring final victories. And each week, This Is Your Life was intent on making it clear to all that a truthful documentary presentation could be just as exciting as a fictional drama. So as you just heard, the ambushed guest for that February 9th, 1972 episode of This Is Your Life was Jeanette Spagnier. And we chose to start out this episode with that old audio introduction in the hopes that it might be a great way to underline just how incredible Jeanette Spanier's life actually was. So I'm assuming that few people today will actually recognize her name. But when this show was filmed, quite a few people already knew Spanier's life story. You know, by then she had written two popular autobiographies, one in 1959 and a follow-up in 1970 and the combination of her longtime position as a directrice at a haute couture house in Paris, her love of continually dropping celebrity names, and her incredible stories of wartime tragedies, anxieties, and adventures, made for the perfect read. If you do manage to find a copy of one of her books, I'd really recommend picking it up for a fun poolside read this summer. The two initial autobiographies are called It Isn't All Mink, and the second one is called And Now It's Sables, so it's obvious that Jeanette was writing during a moment when fashion wasn't yet worried about PETA activists, and I do think that Eamon Andrews actually managed to wrap up her story quite well with this short, alliterated summation that you just heard. Jeanette Spanier really did have a life that was filled with fun, fear, and fate. Hello, I'm John Gilligan. On today's de Balmain podcast, we're going to start off exploring a bit of the fascinating life of Jeanette Spanier, not only because it's such an interesting story, but also because it'll help us to better understand how the house of Balmain worked during its earliest decades while Spanier was Bauman's directrice, when she was in charge of almost every daily decision at 44, Francois Premier, As directrice of the house for almost 30 years... Spania played a decisive role in helping to shape Bauman's post-war growth. She worked very closely with Pierre Bauman and his design team, helping to decide what would be shown in each season's collections. She also oversaw the house's retail team, and worked closely to build relationships with the most important clients of the house. Her love of name-dropping is mind-blowing, but the friendship set she formed with many of the biggest celebrities of the time, well that was of key importance for the house. In Spain, also oversaw the Balmain Cabin, which is the group of in-house couture models who modeled each collection for the clients, celebrities, and journalists who visited the flagship. Lynn Yeager, the award-winning fashion journalist, will be joining us later in today's program to help us understand what life was like for those models and what those early shows were like for Balmain. And, as always, Lynn is promising us that she's found a healthy helping of fun, scandal, and gossip to mix in with those essential background facts. I am Olivier
0: Rousteing. Welcome to my world. world. Bienvenue à à l'Atelier Balmain.
1: So let's get back to Jeanette. She was actually born Jenny Yvonne Spanier in Paris. She spent her earliest years in the French capital, which is why she always spoke fluent French. As you've already heard, though, she spent most of her childhood in London. And after her wealthy family's fortune disappeared during the Great Depression... She had to go out and find a job. And since, just like every other rich girl that she knew, she loved to shop, she assumed that she would be a natural at selling. And although it seems to be a fact that greatly disappointed her class-conscious mother, she was clearly a born salesperson. She managed to get a job at the famous Fortnum & Mason department store at London's Piccadilly. Fortnum & Mason has a 300-year history of supplying the royals with their needs. And this is the point in her autobiography where the endless name-dropping kind of begins. Anyway, as she waited on them, she loved getting to know all the society ladies, the great beauties of the time, and the stars of the London theatre. And she was very pleased to be the Prince of Wales' private sales assistant, waiting on both him and the American socialite, Wallace Simpson. But her life of fun and frivolity changed radically after she returned to Paris for a short vacation. During that trip, she fell in love with a young doctor, Paul Emile Senben. She ended up marrying him in 1939 and began a new life with him in Paris. And that's how she found herself trapped in the French capital after the war had begun and after the Nazis had taken over. As she explained to the BBC in 1968, it was really a stupid year for an English girl to leave England and go to France because three months after I was married, I was cut off from everything I loved in the world except my husband. I was cut off from my country, my friends, from everything. Looking back, years later, she would admit in interviews that she had been foolish to stay in Paris once the war had started. She had wanted to leave and return to England, but her husband refused to leave France while it was still fighting the Germans. And she refused to leave without him. And once the Nazis marched into Paris, it was too late. And as daily life rapidly changed in the French capital, as a Jewish couple, they quickly realized that the new situation was just too unsafe for them to stay there. So they fled. And for the entire period of the occupation, they were on the run. Those long years, filled with hunger, fears, exhaustion, and anxiety, changed her completely. So let's go back and see how a bit of that story was presented on This Is Your Life in 1972. As the TV screen shows newsreel images of an occupied France, and then shots of high up on peaks where the young couple began their four and a half years of hiding from the Nazis, Eamon Andrews and Jeanette Spanier discuss the early years of the Odyssey. Back
0: for the next four years, you were never parted. But now with German troops in France, you faced a new terror together as you live a life on the run. The fear of arrest and death because, as you said, you were Jewish. You destroyed your British passport and with false French papers returned to Paris and to this sad scene. The city was occupied by German troops After three miserable months, you escaped to the south, but then Paul Emile's right to practice medicine was taken away. With no money to buy food, you collapsed from hunger in the street. Malnutrition made you almost blind. and As the number of Jews being arrested mounted, you fled again, this time joining refugees heading for the French Alps. You arrived here in the village of Flume, and together walked across this bridge. (laughs) Only you can know your thoughts that day as you trudged up this Steep and winding road mm, to the mountains. Mountains that you hoped offered long hoped for refuge. Yes.
2: And it did. We lived there a year. We lived in that village a year.
0: You passed this yes, the statue. statue of Saint, Saint, Joseph. Saint, Joseph.
2: Saint Joseph.
0: That's right. And you arrived at this village. Yes,
1: Notre Dame yes. de Belcum. So the couple enjoyed a year of relative safety in Savoy. They were protected and looked after by the incredibly brave Joguet family in the small alpine village of Notre Dame de Belcombe, which is not all that far from where Pierre Armand had lived and studied as a child, and very close to the mountain peaks where he had served during the beginning months of the war. But Paul Emile and Jeanette were then forced to flee again once the Nazis took over control of that area from the Italians. From that moment, the couple's flight covered a large part of the country for the next few years, as they went town to town, aided by resistance fighters and sheltered by brain farmers. They were always just a step ahead of the Nazis and the collaborators, and they often came very close to being caught. And just like Pierre Beaumont and so many others, they listened closely to the forbidden news of the advancement of the Allied troops as they worked their way toward Paris after the landings in Normandy. Among the many great interviews that the BBC has with Spanier, there's a short audio from the 60s, when a group of celebrities were asked to share what it felt like to hear the BBC during the war. Spanier told the journalist that the news program for her and her husband was our lifeblood, and it was our comfort, and it kept us sane. In those very same news programs, let them know when the Allied troops had finally entered and freed the French capital. Once she heard that, Spanier was determined to join them and to see a liberated Paris. And since she and Paul Amiel were still in the occupied zone, the only way to do that was to hop on a bicycle and ride many, many miles, relying on information from the villagers in order to avoid battles and German troop movements, all in order to reach the Allies and Paris. Paul Amiel and Jeanette spoke with Eamon Andrews about that bike ride, during the 1972, this is your life episode.
0: And afterwards, in fact, <laughs> shortly afterwards, August 24th, 1944, you were 140 miles from Paris when you heard the news that the city had been liberated. Yes. To get there meant yet another dangerous trip through German lines. Now, how did you and Jeanette make that trip, Paul Well, uh,
1: we had to combine two things, to have two bikes. Because so you it made was impossible. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we were and, riding a bicycle through the German lines. And it was very dangerous because the Germans were then retreating and tried to uh, take everything
0: available.
2: And we bicycled 90 miles in one day Mm. and suddenly in the middle of nowhere, there was a battle going on somewhere with a great deal of noise, but where we were sitting there uh, uh, bicycling, suddenly my husband said, get off your bicycle, we're free, we're free. And there was nothing but mud and rain and I thought, well, he's gone mad. I mean, this has been too much for
1: him.
0: Four and a half years of <laughs> year. That's the only time you thought so.
1: <laughs> and <laughs> he said, don't you see what I see? And in the mud was an empty
2: Chesterfield packet. <laughs> so we knew that the Americans had passed by there a very short time. So we were free.
0: No, and at last, you return to a liberated Paris. Paul O'Neill returned to work as a doctor while you were taken on by the American Army, in fact, yes. as an interpreter responsible for hiring civilian personnel. In 1945, you acted as an interpreter at the Nuremberg War Trials, and in November 1946, were awarded the Medal of Freedom. After four years cut off from your family and friends, you begin to pick up the threads of life again.
1: Okay, so wow. That part of the show managed to wrap up a whole lot of history in just a couple of minutes. And there's quite a lot of the couple's story that was left out of that, probably because it wasn't something that one could really discuss during a 1970s primetime program. So my apologies if I end up repeating a bit of what you just heard, but I'm going to try and add a bit more detail. Jeanette and Paul Emil had somehow managed to do the impossible. They had survived. After more than four and a half years of constant hiding, fear, hunger, and running, they'd actually managed to stay alive and avoid the Nazis. But when it was possible to finally escape occupied France, they biked for days to reach a newly liberated Paris and they immediately befriended the British and American troops that they met. And they made it clear to those troops that they wanted to join in the fight. Paul Emile went to where he was most urgently needed. He returned to working as a doctor as quickly as he could. He was hired by the new provisional French government and eventually assigned to be part of the team, overseeing the heartbreaking task of helping the thousands of returning Frenchmen, Jews, Roma, gays, resistance fighters, prisoners of war, and others, who were coming back home after somehow having managed to survive the concentration camps and the slave labor factories. The Nazis and the collaborators had actually deported 166,000 people from France to the camp. And only about 48,000 of those displaced Frenchmen, less than 30%, managed to survive and return. And, in addition, thousands of more young men and women have been shipped off to Germany to work as slave labor for the Nazi war machine. In France, all of those returning from the camps were referred to as les déportés, the deported ones. The story of their return, the return of the déportés to Paris, is shocking and horrible to hear. There are countless tales from that moment of family members being simply unable to recognize returning relatives. So many of the camp survivors, often still wearing the infamous striped uniforms, were just so emaciated and so close to death that they more closely resembled skeletons than what they had looked like before, before when they had been rounded up. And at the time that Paris was liberated, when Jeanette and Paul Emile first entered the unoccupied territory, most French people just like the rest of the world, had not learned yet of the horrible facts of the Nazi's final solution. And it was absolutely shocking to Parisians when they saw firsthand the survivors of the camps. The words of the resistant fighter, Yves Bion, from his autobiography, *Retour à la vie, return to life, make very clear just how shocking and how horrible it was for most French people to learn the truth. In his book, he described an often-repeated scene at the Paris train station as the thousands of deportees began to finally return home. Les premiers concentrationnaires descendent sur le quai the first camp survivors alight on the platform, and there is deep silence. The civilians les look at these poor creatures and start crying. Des Women fall to their knees, ambiance. speechless. Les the deportees proceed, de somewhat Charlie. Ils They're headed toward a world they had forgotten and complaise. no longer understood. Ils voient des terriens vêtus comme des terriens. They see earthlings dressed Ils like regardent. earthlings. They Ils look at them without saying a word. Ces êtres qui d'une disparue, These aliens arriving from another planet see other beings in front of them that they cannot recognize. Pied, and under their feet, they cross the border. Un
0: à and
1: that's when the others rush alors, at them. C'est la rue sur eux. Man, woman, rush toward them, them, waving des pictures des in their hands. Where are you coming from? Have you met my brother, my son, my husband?
2: Look at this photo. That's him.
1: Regardez cette photo. C'est lui. And tragically, many liberated deportees were actually so sick and so weak that when they finally were freed, they were unable to survive the journey home. In his memoirs, Pierre Baman writes about his good friend, Rolf Lungebo, who had been arrested for his work with the underground and had somehow managed to survive the horrendous years at Dachau. But then tragically, he died of typhus just after having been liberated by the Americans in April 1945. For his work with the camp survivors, as well as the support of the French resistance during the occupation, Dr. Paul-Emile Sedman was later awarded France's highest decoration, the Legion of Honor, for his service to the Republic. Jeanette Spanier was also determined to help however she could in the fight against the Nazis. She signed on with the American troops, assisting them in the recruitment of young students building up a bilingual core of trained secretaries, switchboard operators, assistants, and translators to help as the Allies pushed further and further east across France and finally into Germany. And even after Berlin fell and the final victory was assured, Spanier was determined to help the Allies ensure that the Nazis were brought to justice. Spanier volunteered to work for the famous Nuremberg trials. Those trials, overseen by the Allies, prosecuted the leaders of the Nazi Germany for planning and carrying out the Holocaust and other war crimes. Nuremberg was actually a series of historic military tribunals and it lasted from November 1945 until October 1946. Spanier oversaw the creation and functioning of a bilingual support staff for the Allied prosecutors. In recognition of her resistance work, her support of the Allied troops, and for her work in helping to prosecute some of the 20th century's most horrific war criminals, Spagna was awarded the United States Medal of Freedom, which President Truman had established to honor those civilians whose actions aided in the war efforts of the United States and its allies. In her interviews, lectures, and writing, Spagna continually stressed that the many years that she had spent both fleeing and prosecuting the Nazis had changed her forever. Even after she returned to Paris long after the end of the Nuremberg trials, Even decades after she first began overseeing the daily operations at Beaumont, she could not forget the essential lessons that she had learned during the war. So we started out talking today about This Is Your Life. There's another popular British program that centers on celebrities and their lives. It's a legendary radio series called Desert Island Disc. Since the early 1940s, that BBC program has been inviting stars and artists to come to the studio and speak about eight recordings that they would want with them if they were ever stranded on a desert island. It's a very simple and a very clever format. Basically, excerpts of the recording are played, and the host then discusses with each castaway the reasons behind each of the eight choices. It's a very smart way to spark discussions about incredible lives, distinctive outlooks, and interesting experiences. To date, there's been over 3,000 episodes and it's always a great listen. In fact, just recently, that 80-year-old show was selected by a panel of broadcasting experts as the greatest radio program of all time. Jeanette Spanier was a guest on Desert Island Disc in June 1965. And most of her choices are pretty much what you'd expect. She chose performers who were her friends and artists associated with the house. For example, there was a song by Marlena Dietrich and a recording of Laurence Olivier. She also selected a song from Lena Horne, and obviously that made perfect sense. Pierre Beaumont had often listed Horne as one of the most beautiful, fashionable, and inspirational women of his time. And the house would, of course, be thrilled whenever she might choose to wear Beaumont. But during the show, Spanier highlighted a very different reason behind her choice. Lena Horne, a groundbreaking Black American actress and singer, was very engaged in the civil rights movement. She had long worked with the NAACP, she is part of the March on Washington, and she was determined to use her celebrity status to push powerful men to make needed, long overdue changes. A few years before Spanier was hosted on Desert Island Disc, Horn had recorded a single called Now. That song was actually banned on several radio stations, due to its call for an immediate end to discrimination. The lyrics might seem tame to us today. But back then, Horn was intent on using the song to provoke thought and push for change. Spania made it clear to the host that her choice of Horn and that recording had nothing at all to do with fashion and everything to do with what she had gone through in her own life. Her years of fleeing and persecution had changed her forever and opened her eyes to the horror and dangers of hate, prejudice, and discrimination. And Spania repeated that same message several times in many different interviews over the years. For example, she told the BBC at another radio interview from 1968, Those four and a half years have made me who I am today. Because, you see, I didn't realize I was Jewish before the war. I didn't realize many things. I was a frivolous young woman, and the fact of being hunted, and the fact of not knowing whether I was going to be alive or dead from one hour to the next, well, that does a great deal of good to one's character. So the story that we told Espagne's life up to this point would be more than enough to guarantee a good read. But of course, Espagne's book added one more incredible plot twist, the final role of her life, that of the directrice of the House of Belmont. After the war's terrors and the post-liberation work for the Allies, the Espagne-Sidman couple seemed very happy to settle down in a quieter existence. Paul Emile established his medical office at the same address as the couple's home, on Paris' beautiful Avenue Arceau, and Jeanette began thinking about looking for a new job as France's post-war economy started to get back on its feet. Then in 1947, a friend from London reached out to Spanier to ask her to take her daughter to buy two new dresses at the showroom of the hot new designer in town, Pierre Balmain. Spanier, like everybody else, had already heard of this new Pierre Balmain but she didn't realize that the young designer's headquarters were located just a few blocks away from her own house. And although she only had shabby clothing to pull on, she points out in her memoirs that even her underwear at the time was darned. Don't forget that Paris at this time was still working its way through shortages and rationing. She took her friend's daughter over to the showroom on 44 Francois Pimier. After sitting through the house's daily show, her friend's daughter insisted on purchasing a Balmain couture design that Spanier knew was too grown up for her. Her years of sales experience seemed to return to her in a flash. Spanier spoke sternly to the sales assistant, demanding that she bring more age-appropriate designs to the fitting room. And then, instead of the sales assistant, the next person to poke her head into the fitting room was Pierre Balmain's mother, Francoise. She told Jeanette that she had overheard her exchange and that Pierre Bauman needed a strong woman like her to run his retail team. And so, one day later, Spanier began her first post-war full-time job, helping Bauman manage its retail operations. Spanier's books then tell of her rapid rise within the new company, as she quickly gained the trust of both Francoise and Pierre. As we know, she was eventually named the house's first directrice. In her first autobiography, she explained what that role really entailed. So basically, I would say the directrice is responsible for every human problem throughout the part of the firm which the public cannot see. The workrooms are not her business, but it does become her business if a certain dress doesn't fit, so she has to cooperate with the fitters responsible for the workrooms. If the terrible shriekings of two mannequins coming to blows over who shall show what dress should penetrate the ears of, say, the Begum Agi Khan, then that also is the fault of the directrice. If the tearing and snarling sounds made by two venduses quarreling over a customer should reach the customer, that is the directrice's fault also. If a customer does not pay her bill, that somehow is also the directrice's fault, and so on and so forth right around the clock. She and Pierre Baman hit it off immediately. He always had a place in his heart for someone connected to his beautiful home region of Savoy where Jeanette and Paul Emile had taken refuge early in the war. And the two seemed to complement each other perfectly, which may explain why she continued working with him for almost 30 years. In her first autobiography, as she discusses Pierre Maman, her affection for the designer is easy to see. Pierre Bermont was amused by my enthusiasm, my enjoyment of organization, my love of selling. We talked together. He was broad and strong, and in his 30s, he had been studying to be an architect before he became fascinated by women's clothes. I'm sure it is the way that the clothes are made and built that inspires him. He's an extraordinary personality. He's bouncy as a countryman, he's the exact opposite of the conventional idea of a couture. He has a wonderful memory. He remembers every dress he has ever made, with its name and its number, and the customer to whom it has been sold. His whole existence is couture. He loves long evening dresses and little woolen numbers high at the neck. He loves dancing. He loves Italy. He loves publicity. He loves very luxurious clothes with embroidery all over them. He loves furs. He loves impossible combinations of material. He loves navy and black, brown and black. He loves wild projects that will take him to the end of the world. In order to best oversee the daily operations of Balmain, she believed that she needed to be in the center of everything. Those of you who already know the house's iconic home, At 44 rue francois Pemier, will remember the impressive staircase that you climb after you enter the flagship's front entry area. Spani insisted on setting up her desk at the top of that staircase, out in the open, so she could better oversee everyone and everything. The sellers, the buyers, the atelier team, the celebrities, and the team of in-house couture models. And her best-selling books explained in detail how she needed to work in very different ways with each of these very different groups of people. The sellers, the vendus, seemed to have caused her the most headaches. Each guest was assigned their own vendus from the moment they entered Balmain. It was an art, Spanier explained, pairing the right salesperson to the right customer. And from the moment the match was made, the vendus was expected to fight for their client, ensuring the best seat in a show and making sure that the tailoring was done by the best talent in the Balmain atelier. Obama, a Balmain salesperson who had to possess one very special gift. She needed to be able to help the customer envision the beautiful possibilities of a couture design. Remember, clients were seeing designs that were being shown on a couture model and which may not fit the client correctly initially. And each and every salesperson wanted Juliette Chanclos be in charge of fitting the gown to their clients. jean was enormously talented, and she helped to show that the relationship between a fitter and a customer is one of the most important couture. The house's most important clients often specifically requested that jean work on their couture purchases. Catherine Hepburn, for example, made it very clear that she would not accept any other fitter from the house's atelier. What seemed to drive Spanier especially crazy was the fact that the Bauman vendus exhibited absolutely no desire for change. With each new collection, she said, they went into a state of paralysis. They were always worried about whether their clients would feel comfortable with any new direction in any of the upcoming seasons. That attitude so bothered Spanier and Pierre Balmont that they eventually eliminated the sales team from any part of pre-show discussions. Instead, after a few years of working together, Balmain and Spanier established their own procedure for making choices for each season's collection. A little before scheduled presentation of the new collection to the world's leading fashion editors, Pierre would have a special one-person showing for Jeanette one evening at the Balmain Salon. And she always made sure to be always very enthusiastic. For some reason, for example, she liked to shout out bread and butter, bread and butter whenever she saw something that she liked. And when she was convinced that Balmont had created something that would sell very quickly, she'd shout out, ''Bread and butter with jam on it!'' Then, after they had their private show, Spagna and Bauman would have a late-night dinner at an all-night restaurant in Leal. And once they finished with the meal, she would, as gently as possible, make her suggestions about any possible changes to his collection. Spagna was also in charge of handling the house's most important clients. I mentioned before that Spanier loved to drop names, and seriously, her books and interviews are absolutely full of references to famous clients and friends. For example, when I was reading chapter 17 of her first autobiography, I started to jot down some of the names that came up in those ten pages. There was Vivienne Lay, Laurence Olivier, Irving Berlin, Richard Avedon, Claudette Colbert, Marlene Dietrich, Lily Palmer, Danny Kaye, Bing Crosby. Groucho Marx, Bridget Bardot, the Queen of England, Marilyn Monroe, Anita Eckberg, Burt Lancaster, Ava Gardner, and Peter Townsend. And no, not Peter Townsend, the rock star from The Who. Think The Crown. This Townsend was the guy that Princess Margaret was repeatedly denied permission to marry in The Crown because he was divorced. And believe me, there are plenty more names to be found in the book's other chapters, it's easy to see why one of her friends suggested that perhaps a better name for her book would be Name Dropper. But while Spanier seemed to have loved bonding with the celebrities she met while working at Balmont, she had absolutely no patience whatsoever for some of the other types of customers who walked through the doors at 44 Francois Premier. These were the decades when America was ruling the world's marketplace, and as Spanier explained, with their all-powerful currency, many Americans seemed to view France as one enormous flea market. She mentioned in her book that some visiting Americans seemed to believe that the French would be so delighted at the sight of dollars that they would just faint straight away. Many others walked through the door of Balmain's flagship in the hope that Spanier would grant them bargains, gifts, or deals. And to handle those difficult clients, Pierre Balmain gave her special permission to say horrible things to customers who bothered her, as long as she said it with a smile. For example, she noted, it was always the very richest clients who would ask for special price reductions on couture, since she refused to jump into bidding wars, Spanier would just reply, adding that necessary smile, of course, if you cannot afford the 5,000 francs, the House of Balmain can. And Spanier had one very special duty to oversee each day. She managed a large group of in-house Balmain models and the staff of the women who dressed them, as well as the daily Balmain couture shows. To find out more about the life of those Balmain models, and the shows that they participated in, we reached out once again to Lynn Yeager, the prize-winning fashion journalist who recently spoke to us from her home in New York City. Hey, Lynn, how are you? Thanks for calling in again. Could you tell us a little bit about how it worked back in those days? Can you tell us a little bit about the showroom models who were working at the couture Houses in that post-war era?
2: Well, presentations of couture collections in mid-century Paris were very different from the runway shows of today. Houses back then relied on their own in-house models, and those models presented the designs in a much more low-key manner than what we see today. Of course, fashion houses like Balmain still do rely on in-house models, full part-time employees who work closely with the designer as she or he designs, fits and reviews the growing collection as it's constructed piece by piece over many months before fashion week. Those who follow Olivier Rousteing on Instagram, and I know there are millions of you out there, already know that he often shoots photos and videos of the Bauman in-house models wearing his latest ideas, giving his millions of followers some (laughs) tiny little teases of some of the strongest looks and mood of his upcoming shows. But in post-war Paris, couture houses relied on a whole team of full-time in-house models. These were women who worked all day at the couture house, each linked to a specific series of designs each season, couture creations that had been specifically created for them and fitted to them. And these same house models would form part of the daily shows that the houses would put on for their clients every morning and afternoon. These models formed part of what was called the house's cabine, Cabine is a French word, it literally means cabin, I never would have guessed, and refers (laughs) to the backstage room where models change from one couture creation to the next. And that same word was used figuratively to refer to the distinct group of models employed at each couture house. Pierre Balmain, like most Paris couture designers, had his own specific cabine, the Balmain cabine. Each season there were about 10 to 12 women working full-time at the Balmain cabine. And for Balman and for every couturier, it was important that all the women in the house's cabine reflected the distinct look and spirit of the house. Each model in the cabine had a distinct role to play. Each was seen as someone with a distinct type of spirit and look. For example, some women would be hired because they had a young, fresh look, which would be linked to more sporty and young designs. May I just say that the young, fresh look, if you look up these models on, on the computer, which I did on Google Images, young and fresh meant something different. They are very yeah. sophisticated. They are not like freckled-faced Cheryl Teagues, you know, in <laughs> white shorts. They no, are. Very true.
1: You know, yeah.
2: It's a very different uh, kind of notion of young and fresh. Other models might be seen as more sophisticated, and they would be the preferred mannequins for elegant evening couture designs. And I looked them up too, and they don't even look human. The cabine (laughs) models were very closely linked to the season's collections. They would inspire Balmain's beginning sketches, and starting from that moment, they would then be tied to every step in the creation of a couture piece. The model's name was written on a ribbon that was sewn into the dress, and from one stage to the next, the creation would be tailored and styled to best fit and suit her specifically. So the more a model inspired the designer, the higher the number of creations she would end up presenting during couture shows. And when the cabine models weren't involved in fittings, they were often taking part in daily shows for customers. At Balmain, there was a daily 3 p.m. show. There were also more intimate presentations in the morning, usually around 10, for those customers who asked to see just as few specific designs. And backstage life in the cabine was tough. From what models and dresses have written, it sounds like it was way too hot and way too crowded. People could be anxious and worried and tension and competition could sometimes be high. And let me just guess, I don't think they got paid that much either. To get an idea of what it was like back in those days, on the webpage links you can cling to see an amazing series of shots from the American photographer Mark Shaw for Life Magazine in 1954. He shot the Bellman Cabine as the models changed for the shows. The women and the clothing are both, of course, beautiful, but you can clearly see that the space is very limited and you can sense the anxiety and the frenzied atmosphere as women try to quickly change for the next turn in front of Bellman's customers.
1: Hmm. So, Lynn, once the models move out from the cabine into the showroom, what exactly were these early post-war Paris haute couture shows like?
2: These shows were light years away from what we're used to seeing today. Today's shows lasted about 20 minutes tops. These post-war couture defilés could last hours. Balmain's usually lasted around two hours. There was definitely no over-the-top runway ambiance. For today's Balmain, Olivier Rousteing might be constructing enormous Balmain festival stages for those fashion runway meets rock show presentations. But during Pierre Balmain's early years, his couture presentations were shown in the house's salons at 44 Rue François Premier. Those presentation spaces were designed like aristocratic sitting rooms with mirrors and paintings on the wall and the guests seated on small gold chairs or uncomfortable couches. And could anything make it more clear that this was a very different era? There were several metal ashtrays scattered around the space Hmm. for easy ash access because smoking was fun. In addition, (laughs) (laughs) there were definitely no blaring runway soundtracks. Just a model meandering slowly through the space, allowing the guest a chance to examine the piece closely, ask the model to twirl, and sometimes even reach out to touch the fabric. Usually the model carried a card with a number indicating which design she was wearing. That same number, and perhaps a small description of the design itself, would also be announced on loudspeaker, usually in English and French. And luckily back then, nobody had to deal with all those obnoxious iPhones recording every possible moment and blocking everyone's view. In fact, photographers were usually barred from these shows, since the houses definitely did not want to share images. Just as today's fashion designers lament fashion rip-offs, mid-century Parisian Couture's biggest challenge seemed to be the many spies who came to the shows in hopes of stealing new ideas. The real pros needed to remember a design long enough to get back to their hotel room and sketch it, since anyone caught sketching during the show would be expelled, and the expulsions were often done by the police since there actually was an entire group at the Paris police force dedicated to helping the houses in their fight against counterfeiters. And can we just say, only in Paris would there be (laughs) such a section of the gendarme. Since foreign companies and department stores were so intent on getting their hands on the latest Parisian couture designs, the leading couture houses would try to control them by charging admission, forcing them to guarantee a minimum purchase in order to get through the door. And front seats were definitely not given over to influencers or soccer stars. Those daily shows were not marketing events. It was all about sales. The goal was simply to present directly to buyers. Often, members of the house's sales staff, les vendeuses, would be standing right behind an important client as she watched the show, whispering to her to check and see if she was interested as each new design passed by. Could there be a bigger nightmare than the salesperson standing behind you, (laughs) leaning over and whispering, Madame, you will not look so fat in that. Perhaps consider that. (laughs) I mean, really. Once a client made clear which design she liked, the vendeuse and shopper would go in a fitting room to be shown the pieces individually by the house models. Any final purchases would be created during a series of atelier couture fittings, a process that stretched out over six weeks or so. So that's how the shows happened back then. Of course, twice a year there were the very important shows that were the first presentation of the seasonal collections, the fall, winter, and spring-summer couture collections. And these new designs would be shown by the cabine to a very select crowd of celebrity socialites, and fashion editors, just like Pierre Balmain's first show of his first collection when his famous new French style was presented to the European and American fashion press Gertrude Stein, Alice B. Toklas, Cecil Beaton, and others that first presentation that we discussed in previous podcasts, though it's hard to imagine Gertrude sauntering around in some of these outfits, but okay, (laughs) maybe.
1: Exactly. So what do we know about the models themselves who were part of the Balmain cabine?
2: Well, models in the cabine, the house showroom models, were really a distinct type of model. Showroom models were not like the more famous stores of fashion magazine editorials. Everyone knows about the famous models of the 20th century, Dovima, Fuss and Greaves, Shrimpton, Crawford, et al., all those legendary models that we'll be talking about in upcoming episodes. But few people remember or talk about the couture showroom models. When fashion magazines came to shoot the Paris collections, they usually brought their own models. Styles were rarely shot on the showroom models, but two Balmain showroom models actually became quite famous in their day. One was a French model known as Praline, the other was a striking Welsh model originally known as a Bronwyn Pugue, but who was very much more famously known for her post Bauman life and title when she married the third Viscount Astor to become Lady Astor, and she eventually came to play a minor role in one of Great Britain's greatest scandals
1: hoo, great. I knew that we could count on you for some scandals, Lynn. So just to keep the listener's interest until the end, can we probably just start it with Praline, who I assume is the least scandalous story?
2: Praline is the least scandalous, but uh, listeners, hold on, because the scandalous one is really scandalous. <laughs> yes, Praline, although interesting, has a bit less scandal attached to her. But Praline actually was a legitimate celebrity in post-war France. She was born to a working-class family in 1921, her father was a bus driver and her mother worked at a glove factory, and her real name was Jeanine Marie Lucienne Sagny. Like so many others before and after her, she was eager to move to Paris and become a star. She originally worked as a shop girl and then as a stenographer, but she was finally able to get a job as a house model at Lucien Le Long, where Balmain was designing alongside Christian Dior. Bauman and Praline became very close very quickly. She had an upbeat and fun personality, which Bauman compared to that of a Paris urchin, but he also saw in her the personification of feminine charm and the regal elegance of a great courtesan. At Le Long, Bauman loved how she could immediately switch from one style to another. She could be all gamine in a beach outfit and then walk into the showroom a few minutes later as an elegant aristocrat in a long gown or luxe furs. He had designed a black dress for Le Long, which was known as the petite profit dress, because Le Long hadn't believed in it at all, thinking it would only make a small profit. And Belmé loved the fact that a small profit dress, modeled by Praline, was an incredible success, selling more than 360 copies, which was a big amount for a couture design during the occupation, mm. where lots of people were thinking about things other than a petite profite dress, just saying. <laughs> Praline followed Balmain when he left Lucienne Lelong, and it was Pierre Balmain who gave her a new name. There's a whole lot of Pygmalion energy in couture at the time, with designers like Balmain giving new names and makeovers to working class girls who come to work for them. Balmain felt the name like Janine was too commonplace, and after seeing her close his couture show in a pink and white gown, Balmain said that she was as bittersweet as a Praline, and the name stuck. She had an offbeat personality, always ready to play the clown but she was also totally unpredictable, as clowns can be. For example, (laughs) she would sometimes just vanish a few hours before a show, forcing members of the Bauman team to take off all over the city in search of her. Once they found her at a railway station, another time at Orlais Airport. Both times she had a ticket in hand, all set to escape on a quick trip away from Paris. Crazy, unreliable, but she was definitely no dummy. She'd only flee the Bauman showroom after the house's couture dresses had been sewn to fit only her. Before that, she would never dream of missing a fitting, because then Balman could simply choose another model to replace her. Mm-hmm. That volatility and unreliability meant that she and Pierre Balman, always very close, had a lot of loud arguments. Most famously, Praline and Balman had a major falling out when she entered the Miss Cinemonde competition to win a trip to Los Angeles and screen test to become a big Hollywood star. Balmain thought it was below a luxury haute couture house to be associated with Cinemonde magazine, much less an event like that one, and he refused to lend her a dress for the competition. But she actually won wearing a Jack Fath design, so she took off on her first prize trip to the United States, met a few stars, but after she was unable to convince the studios that she had any acting ability, she returned to Paris to work again with the Balmain cabine. Wherever Praline went, she knew how to attract crowds and the press, something that always made Balmain very happy. He tells the story in his memoirs of an over-the-top show that took place under the Eiffel Tower in January 1948. And this, I think, is quite unbelievable, just saying. (laughs) Balmain, along with the other great Parisian designers of the time, was to close the show, presenting his latest creation, on Praline, who would be riding an elephant in front of a crowd of celebrities with the president of France. Before designing anything, Bellman did his research, talking to the circus trainers in order to find out what his assigned elephant Mary liked and what Mary didn't like, and then he designed accordingly. I don't even think this story is true, but it's fun. (laughs) On the night of the... Come on. So he's with Mary the elephant showing her designs, and how is she indicating her preference? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this story is Mm. insane. On the night of the show, all the other designers who had not bothered to go to the circus trainer and sh- preview the looks before their own respective elephants were forced to withdraw after their elephants refused to carry their models and designs they didn't like. And then, as Praline rode Mary out into the crowd, <laughs> all the other elephants followed without their models. Praline and Bellman were the stars of the night, outshining even Rita Hayworth, who was in the crowd also wearing bellman, not on an elephant. In fact, (laughs) Praline was one of the few Paris showroom models who managed to retain true celebrity status in France. There was even a hit song written about her by Eddie Constantine and sung by Jean Sablon. Although maybe this song may not have the most impressive lyrics, or perhaps we've lost something in translation. Anyway, the song follows Praline through her day as a model, starting out in the morning. And I don't know the tune, so I'm going to make it up. On the Champs-Élysées, her hair all in curls, she's pretty and fresh. It's Praline! And then in the evening, <laughs> in the evening, after a long day of work at Balmain, Praline seems ready to have a little bit of fun, and the song lyrics hint at adventure in the final verses. The night I met her, she gave me a smile, and then we went dancing after that. Well, I can't tell you, since then everything has changed, and now we are engaged. Et la vie est jolie! She also published a best-selling autobiography, Praline, Mannequin de Paris, at age 30. Throughout, in spite of her modeling success at Balmain, she remained intent on becoming a movie star. She was cast a few times in small roles as a Parisian couture model in film, not much of a stretch, and then later she began acting in a few French films under her real name Jeanine Marseille. Her husband, Michel Marseille, was also an actor. But sadly, she died in 1952 at the young age of 31, killed in an automobile accident. Bauman was devastated when he heard the news. At her funeral mass at Paris' enormous Church of Saint-Augustin, her coffin was completely covered in pink roses, and the crowd of onlookers was said to be enormous. The funeral was a media event covered in all the Parisian magazines of the time.
1: Wow. What do we know about the other Bauman house model, the one that you mentioned before, the Welsh model who went on to become... Who became Lady Esther?
2: Yes, Bronwyn Pew
1: <laughs> Yeah, Bronwyn Pew. How did she start working inside the Bauman cabin? And don't forget, Len, you promised us a very good scandal too.
2: This is a major scandal. It's not like that elephant story. It's real. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real scandal and it really happened. Fran was a completely different sort of model, nothing like Praline. Remember, every member of the Bauman cabine, like those of every couture house, was selected in order to fill a specific role. To best show his different designs, Pierre Bauman explained that he basically wanted to have two types of models in his cabine. The first type was defined as someone who was cheeky and impishly elegant. That was a role that Praline was perfect for. And after her tragic death, that position was taken over by two beautiful blonde French models, Geneviève and Marie-Thérèse. Sidebar, those two looked so alike that people always assumed that they were sisters. There's a great story in Bellman's memoir. Genevieve and Marie-Thérèse were traveling with Bellman in the States in the 50s, and a Denver reporter shouted out a question as they passed by, asking if they were twins. Marie-Thérèse, who evidently did not speak English all that well, famously replied with a smile, No, we're French. No, say. <laughs> No, Francais, I guess she said. The other type of Balman cabine model was a classically elegant mannequin, someone who could be seen as more as an aristocratic woman of the world. Bronwyn Pugh, with her terrible name, could definitely (laughs) play that role. She gave off a haughty, regal air, setting herself apart by her nonchalance and a sort of, I'm really too good for this attitude. So quickly, here's the beginning story. Bronwyn was born in 1930 in London. She was the upper-middle-class daughter of a judge and when she was nine, she was sent away to be educated in a traditional Welsh language and culture school. When she finished with that, she had dreams of becoming an actress. She enrolled in the Central School of Speech and Drama, but after she was told she was too tall for film or stage, she was almost six feet, she studied to be a drama teacher. Once she graduated, it was clear that she wasn't all that interested in taking any school staff positions. Instead, she did some modeling for London designers and ended up getting an announcing job on BBC television, replacing a popular host who was on pregnancy leave. After that, BBC job ended in 1956. She flew to Rome to do runway shows and then went to Paris, where Balmain wanted to hire her as soon as he saw her. But not everyone at Balmain agreed. Balmain's mother, Françoise Balmain... And the house's directrice, Jeanette Spanier, were both strongly against hiring her. They saw her as too big and too strange-looking. <laughs> Spanier even rather meanly suggested that she looked like someone from the Adams family. Mm-hmm. But Baumann was convinced that she was perfect for his house, and in time he managed to convince the others. He was convinced that she was a new Garbo, and he pushed her to study the Swedish actress's film. And Baumann did her homework. She told London's Dispatch in 1959 that. One day Bauman said to me, you are my Garbo. Vous êtes mon Garbo. (laughs) That gave me the clue. I went to see an old Garbo film, Mane Waluska. I don't think I'd ever made up properly until then. I plucked my eyebrows and made them into a thin arc. I made up my eyes much more heavily and wore false eyelashes. I painted my mouth to look as much as possible like Garbo. Besides pushing to adapt a new look, Bellman also decided to change her name, explaining, well, the good idea in this case, explaining that (laughs) since he couldn't pronounce Bronwen, from now on she would be called Bella. Besides her height, pale complexion, thick brown hair and bright green eyes, and that new Garbo-esque aristocratic look, Bronwyn Bella stood out because of her very distinctive, powerful walk during the house's presentations. The New York Herald Tribune's fashion critic, Eugenia Shepard humorously described Bronwyn's haughty presence during one show, noting that she dragged her Bauman fur coat behind her as if she just killed it and was bringing it back home to her partner. (laughs) Bauman was her biggest fan. He told the press that he considered her to be among the most beautiful women in the world, ranking her up there with Dietrich, Vivian Leigh, Lena Horne, and of course, Greta Garbo. He would design long gowns that worked perfectly for her coloring and height. He also granted her special rights that none of the other girls in the cabine were granted. She only had to work for the mezzo presentations uh, done for the press at each new season as well as for the most important foreign travels of the house, meaning that she was allowed to escape working the daily shows for customers. All the other cabine crew worked through the year, but Brahman only had to show up for fittings and shows during the eight weeks before the January presentations and the eight weeks before the July shows. Outside of these four months in Paris, she spent most of the year in London, and her Paris couture life made her a minor star in London. The British press loved her. They proudly referred to her as Al Bronwyn, and story after story repeated her improbable Welsh schoolgirl to couture model success story, while focusing on the latest details of her social life or listing her advice on makeup and fashion. While in Paris, Bronwyn was definitely not a party girl. In her biography, she makes it clear that she liked to read at night, and she mainly hung out with two other English couture cabine models, Christine and Svetlana, who both worked at Dior. They were friends with the young Yves Saint Laurent. Brown went bonding with Karl Lagerfeld when he was the principal assistant at Balmain, and the group of five had many dinners together and would sometimes go out dancing. Okay, with all due respect, non-party girl, Yves Saint Laurent (laughs) dancing with models and Karl. Ah, just saying. In 1959, she was recovering from a painful breakup when she started seeing William Astor. Astor, who liked his friends to call him Bill, was more formally known as the third Viscount Astor. He was 22 years older than Bronwyn and had been married twice and already had two kids. They got married a year later, and the British press loved the story of a Paris Couture model from Wales marrying a man old enough to be her father, and who incidentally was also one of the richest men in the world. Yes, Bill, being an Astor, was immensely wealthy. He was a baron and a conservative party leader. He also had a whole lot of properties, including a substantial stake in the Astor Family Trust which owned several blocks of central Manhattan, maybe even where I'm sitting right now, who knows. He also had homes in London, Scotland, Ireland, and across the United States. And perhaps most famously, he had an enormous palatial estate on the Thames known as Cliveden.
1: Okay, so I'm starting to sense the approach of that Promise scandal, and
2: Here we go. (laughs) So a lot of prints probably know from the beginning where the story is headed. Well, I don't know because there are young people in the world who don't know this story maybe. But I'm here to tell you about it. And once we start talking about Bill Astor, Lady Astor, aka Bronwyn and Clive Jen, it becomes very, very clear. Back in the early 1960s, those names were in a whole lot of headlines around the world. And since then, quite a few British movies and books have focused on their
1: story. So what is the story about Bill, Bronwyn, and Cliveden?
2: Well, those three names were key ingredients of the Profumo scandal, which rocked Great Britain in the early 60s. And let's be honest, nobody does a scandal like the Brits. Here we might have our break-ins at political headquarters, interns in berets, crazed insurrectionists attacking Congress, but over there they really know how to do a scandal. The Perfuma scandal combined Russian spies, beautiful models, rich Tory peers, government ministers and lots of sex. It brought down a government, helped to change the course of modern British history and destroyed quite a few careers and lives, including Bill and Bronwyn's.
1: <laughs> wow, so what actually happened?
2: Okay. In history books now, Profumo is presented as a decisive turning point in 20th century British history. But hey, this is a fashion podcast, so it might be more fun if we just concentrate on the juicy details. And that's all anybody cared about anyway. And there's <laughs> lots of them. It all started because Bill Astor really loved to entertain. I guess I guess Bronwyn got used to partying, okay? And <laughs> Clifton was definitely an impressive place to hold parties. Before the Astros took over, the enormous 19th century estate had been owned by a host of princes, earls, and dukes, including the first Duke of Westminster. It's set on the Thames River, about an hour away from London by car. Do a quick Google image and you'll see it. It definitely looks like the sort of place featured in BBC dramas. It's 100% down Abbey. And for older listeners, it's got a Brideshead Revisited kind of vibe also. Mm-hmm. In fact, mm-hmm. you might remember season two of Netflix, The Crown. That episode is all about scandals and the early 60s romantic problems between Elizabeth and Philip. And for that episode, the writers decided to place Philip directly into the Profumo affair. Of course, that series did like to play with the facts. And the truth is, Philip might not actually have been a key player in that scandal. But what the hell. But he was, like a whole lot of other powerful men at the time, at the very least tangentially connected to at least one of Profumo's principal players. So back to the scandal. Nine months after Brownwyn and Bill had married, a union that converted Brownwyn into both Lady Astor and the new Chatelaine of Cliveden, Bill threw one of his famous fêtes. Among his guests that night was John Profumo, the secretary of state for war in the Harold Macmillan government. Macmillan, the prime minister, was actually related to Bill's second wife and he was the head of the British Conservative Party. Profumo was a rising star in the party. He was 46 and he was married. During that hot Saturday night in July 1961, Profumo wandered the extensive grounds of the Astro Estate, where he ran into Christine Keeler while she was swimming naked in Cliveden swimming pool. That meeting led to a five-month affair with Keeler, a 19-year-old who was often described as a model and dancer, but who also seems to have been a sex worker. Keeler was at Cliveden that night with her friend Stephen Ward. And guys, you gotta Google Stephen Ward because this freak is beyond. Ward <laughs> was an osteopath, but he was also an artist and an extremely well connected socialite. At the time, there were a whole lot of royals and aristocratic Brits, including Bill Astor, Winston Churchill, Anthony Eden, and Prince Philip, who went to Stephen Ward for osteopath treatments or to have their portraits drawn. And beyond Ward's medical and artistic talents, which seemed to most please quite a few of his powerful upper-class circle, was the fact that Ward always seemed to have one or more pretty girls on hand, girls who were always happy to entertain visitors. It's uncertain whether Ward was just a classic pimp, or if his interest in grooming young girls to entertain powerful men was centered more on voyeurism and a desire to gain control and access to the highest levels of power. Whatever the case might be, Stephen Ward was renting a cottage on the Clive Lynn Estate directly from Bill Astor. Astor claimed that it was his second wife, Philippa, who had first suggested renting Ward the cottage. However it might have happened, living on Clive definitely helped Ward make the connections that he wanted to make, connections to some of the world's most powerful men and to help him do that, Ward often had beautiful young girls staying with him at the Cliveden Cottage. Brownwyn, once she got to know Ward, is said to have told Bill Lester that she didn't trust him, what was her first clue, but her new (laughs) husband would not break off contact with Ward, and so Ward continued to live and entertain on Cliveden's grounds. So knowing Ward's history and all his high-level connections, John Perfumo might have thought that his indiscretions with Killer would be ignored. After all, This wasn't the minister's first affair. In the 30s, he actually had a relationship with a Nazi spy, something that hadn't ended up causing him any trouble. And he doesn't seem to have gone out of his way to hide his indiscretions from other guests that July night. Guests that included Lord Mountbatten, the president of Pakistan, and star interior decorator, David Hicks. But this time was different. At the same time that she was having her affair with Profumo, Christine Keeler was also sleeping with Captain Evgeny Ivanov, a Soviet spy who was working undercover at his country's embassy in London. And Ivanov, after he escaped to Russia, hinted that Ward, Keeler, and Profumo had ultimately helped him access secret British files. All of this was happening during some of the most dramatic moments of the Cold War. The affair began in 1961 and the scandal ruled the news through 1963. At that same moment, the Russians were constructing the Berlin Wall and installing missiles in Cuba. And then Profumo screwed up. He lied to Parliament, got caught in that lie, and Macmillan's government fell, with the Conservatives eventually replaced by a labor led government. Keeler served six months in prison for perjury and obstruction of justice. Ward was charged with living off immoral earnings, but committed suicide in August 1963, just before the trial had ended.
1: Okay, so there's probably no need for any of us to point this out, right? But this is all sounding a little bit too Jeffrey Epstein ish, right?
2: You think? Just a little bit, right? And obviously today, after Epstein's death, we have a lot of questions. So we can understand why, after the 1963 alleged suicide of Ward, who, much like Epstein, seems to have been another full-time procurer for some very powerful men, the public was filled with doubts about official explanations. And the press and the public inevitably turned their focus to the Astors. From the mm-hmm. beginning, the Astors had handled the whole scandal poorly, initially throwing money at Keeler and war to make the problem go away and then refusing to speak to the press. Two strategies which ultimately came to be seen as evidence of guilt. Perhaps what most hurt the Astors was once again timing. The Perfuma scandal broke out at a moment when great changes were happening in British society and the tabloid press was suddenly filled with articles pointing out the hypocrisy of the ruling classes. Helping to create that new spirit of the time was another British scandal the press couldn't get enough of. Argyle versus Argyle. In March 1963, the same month that Profumo lied to the Commons about his relationship with Keeler, there was a very messy, very public society divorce case grabbing the public's attention. The Duchess of Argyle, whom the tabloids eventually began to call the Dirty Duchess, mm-hmm. had been branded a nymphomaniac by her husband, the Scottish peer Ian Douglas Campbell, the 11th Duke of Argyle. The evidence for his divorce case against her, stolen from her residence, was basically a bunch of revenge porn. There were some very salacious Polaroids of the Dirty Duchess with naked (laughs) lovers as well as diaries which recounted scandalous stories about the 88 men, count them, that the Dirty (laughs) Duchess was alleged to have had affairs with. Google it. It's great. Several royals, society members, and high government officials were linked to the diaries and the press had a field day. The BBC just announced that it is making a very much needed mini-series about this scandal starring Claire Foy and Paul Bettany. So after months and months of tabloid coverage of the Profumo and Argyle scandals, Viscount and Lady Astor inevitably came to be seen as just one more example of members of a corrupt, decadent, and dishonest elite that had for too long gotten away preaching one thing to the lower classes while living in a completely different manner behind the walls of their estates. In fact, when Ward died, the newspapers printed the news of his suicide on the front pages next to images of the Astors smiling at a horse race, photos that actually had been taken several days earlier before they had heard the news about Ward. Those images helped to create an indelible impression for the public that the Astors were shallow and corrupt aristocrats who only cared about their personal pleasure. But perhaps it was a very simple, very famous response from another of Ward's young girls, Mandy Rice Davies, that damned William Astor forever. Rice Davies was one more pretty young cabaret dancer, so to speak, that Ward had (laughs) recruited for entertaining his contacts. She claimed in court that Ward pushed her into having an affair with Viscount Astor. When she was presented with Astor's denial while she was in the witness box, she delivered her famous and perfectly damning reply. He would say that, wouldn't he? (laughs) The courtroom immediately erupted into laughter and the next morning's newspaper all relied on the phrase for their headlines. In fact, Rice-Davies' skeptical response to Esther's denial is now included in the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations. It is also occasionally referred to with the abbreviation MRDA, Mandy Rice-Davies Applies. Hmm. Um, Not in the United States, but in Britain, if anyone says MRDA to you, you'll know what they mean. Hmm. The perfumo affair destroyed the Esther's marriage and their position in London society, with the public seeing Bill as a seedy playboy and adulterer, or at the very least a jerk, a fool. They were completely eliminated from London society. Oh, it's sad. Viscount Astor fled London and died in the Bahamas in 1966, allegedly of a broken heart. Many attacked Brownwyn as well. Since she was a model, she was often linked with Keeler and Rice Davies as just one more of Ward's models. Some members of the public still held on to the nineteenth century idea that all models were loose women. And Keeler and Rice Davies had certainly strengthened that opinion. There were also false stories that alleged she had a role in allowing Ward to set himself up in the cottage on the grounds. In addition, there was untrue gossip that Ward had been the one who originally set up Brownman with William Astor. In truth, whatever might have been Viscount Astor's relationship with Ward, there has been no evidence ever given of Brownman being guilty of anything but poor judgment. After Astor's death, Brownman radically changed her life. She had long been attracted to the philosophy of French Jesuit Pierre Teilhard de Chardin who knew and she converted to Catholicism. (laughs) With her astro-inherited she moved to Surrey with her two daughters to set up a charismatic Christian community. She studied to become a psychotherapist and was eventually appointed chairman of Religious Experience Research Center in Oxford.
1: Hmm. Wow.
2: Well that is quite the tale. Great scandal. Great scandal. Are we good? That's good scandal. Come on. Very good scandal.
1: Oh my god. Poor Bronwyn.
2: Yeah, poor Bronwyn, you know, it's, I mean, a lot of those girls married those rich guys and it, you know, didn't end well, you know, I don't
1: know. So maybe we can tie up this podcast and Lynn's stories by returning to where we started, by returning to This Is Your life broadcast that we used to open up this episode. That show, as is usual, held a lot of surprise guests lined up for Jeanette. The Joquet family, who had so bravely sheltered Paul Emile and Jeanette high up in the mountains of Savoy during the war, flew into London for an emotional reunion. Jeanette's sister, Adrienne, as well as her nanny, Muriel Chapman, shared childhood stories, and several members of the Balmont team came over from Paris for the show. Toward the end of the program, Jeanette was clearly moved when a stately and very tall, grey-haired woman walked out into the stage. Bronwyn, or Lady Astor, as the show's host introduced her, came out and gave Jeanette a kiss on the cheek. The scandal of a decade earlier seemed to have escaped everyone's memory, as Jeanette held on to Bronwyn's hand, looked her in the eye, and told her, You did us proud, Bronwyn. Spanier then turned to Andrews to say, She was the all-time glamour girl at Beaumont. For our next Atelier Beaumont show, we're going to continue looking at mid-century Beaumont as the house enjoyed rapid post-war growth. But we're going to adjust the spotlight just a little bit. We'll no longer be focusing our view on the inside of the house that Jeanette Spanier managed day-to-day. Instead, we're going to look outside the house and see what the leading fashion magazines of the time had to say about Beaumont and how they relied on the legendary photographers and models of the time to show the house's latest designs. Lynn Yeager will return, along with Susanna Brown the fashion photography expert who earlier spoke to us about Horst's incredible career. Those two experts will share their knowledge, their insights, and their stories about some of the mid-century's most talented photographers and the beautiful models who worked so closely with them to create the 20th century fashion's most incredible and iconic images. I hope you can join us for that episode.
2: Já vi, ei, Jolie!